Adam Kay proudly served our National Health Service, a caring, dedicated, highly trained professional, except when it was all a bit DIY. We spent the next few hours cannulating each other. Blessed with a bedside manner fit to deliver any news. Uh, fluids were involved. And the gift of bringing life into the world. You're driving home three hours late, but you still have that, that smile on your face. But as he diarised his days as a junior doctor, a tragic experience led Adam to recognise that he and medicine weren't meant to be. I couldn't face that kind of thing ever happening to me ever again, let alone twice a decade, because I'm made of the wrong stuff. He left the NHS. Those diaries became the best-selling book, This Is Going To Hurt, launching a majorly flourishing career in comedy and writing, whilst making time to talk to me about the future of healthcare. That's Adam Kay on this episode of Brilliant Brains with me, Tim Samuels. Brilliant Brains is brought to you by Karmacist, the new name and supplements that you want to be taking every day for mood, immunity, energy, and keeping those stress levels in check. Wouldn't it be great if somehow we could take the plants and herbs we've been turning to for centuries and fuse them with nutrigenomics, which rather fascinatingly explores the relationship between your diet and genes? Well, Karmacist scientists have done just that, to produce a really unique range of supplements. To see the mood, immunity, energy and relax formulations, and frankly get a much better explanation from a Stanford scientist, head to karmacist.com. That's K-A-R-M-A-C-I-S-T dot com, where you can get 10% off by entering the word brilliant at checkout. Back to Adam Kay. Adam, thanks very much. I'd like to kick off by just kind of running quickly through some of the uh, the unusual and uh, challenging experiences that you that you came across who would the most cantankerous patient have been that you faced in your years most cantankerous i mean it's sort of at the time it's easy to get very irritated by your patients and then like when I was looking back at everyone and going through my diaries, I realized that these are people who are going through acutely stressful periods of their life. And I think what I'm like as a patient or a relative or someone complaining to O2, and uh, I probably wouldn't want any of that recorded, uh, recorded either. I think top marks must go, I don't even know the background behind it because I just got the end of this story. The top marks go to um, someone who I heard screaming at a nurse, I pay your salary, I pay your salary. And the nurse replied, can I have a raise then? Adam, what's the, what's the oddest thing you've ever had to tell a relative? The oddest thing I've ever had to tell a relative? Yeah, I mean, I've had to tell a relative that they're very um, acutely delirious slash demented parent got confused and thought that another patient in another bed was their spouse. That was slightly embarrassing given that they, would, they attempted to con- consummate this, uh, this relationship uh, through confusion. Dare I ask how far the consummation went? Uh, fluids were involved. Right. So that was, that's, that's quite a, that's, that was quite a bad one. That's a bit awkward. Yeah. How, and how, how did they take that? I don't actually remember. I think, I think my mind has, <laughs> has put a screen up over that bit. Um, but that's something they don't teach you how to do at medical school. They teach you how to do things like break bad news and that kind of stuff. But, uh, but bad news is sort of generally more 
the more medical variety. Right, rather than unwanted discharges in the packing area. When did you feel that you were most blagging it? When did you think you were perhaps had that sense of imposter syndrome? Um, I mean, that's I've had a constant sense of imposter syndrome throughout my various careers since the very start. But the 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 time that I was most acutely aware of it, or that my imposter syndrome proved itself the most, was the night before I was going to have to do my first night sh- shift as a as a proper doctor. And I realized um, that I didn't know how to put in a drip, basically, mm-hmm. a cannula, a Remflon, the thing, you know, things that put in the back of, back of your arms and put fluids in. And um, the job generally involves, uh, when, you're, when you're junior, being bleeped from place to place to place and chucking in these, these things. And I confessed this very nervously uh, to, um, to, to my flatmates, who we were living on, hospital accommodation we're all at the same level and it seemed that it was a it was a common problem uh and so one of our number went to a ward and stole a box of these cannulas and uh and we spent the next few hours cannulating each (laughs) other putting drips in uh until we were bordering on competent which was good and bad good we could now do this part of our jobs before we had to do it um in earnest, bad because we were turning up with track marks, track marks up our arms. <laughs> it's good to know the NHS is is so comprehensive in in, in its uh, tuition. It's, I mean, it's a lot of the job is is very practical stuff. That the only way to learn how to do it is to do it, and like the same way that your car mechanic had to change a clutch for the first time, so did your doctor if changing a clutch is even a thing i'm really that's i've gone down an analogy route i don't i'm not comfortable with um but uh but yeah so and i think uh now compared to you know i trained quite a long time ago but but now there's much more practical baked into the into the course but yeah mm. was there a patient who perhaps left a particularly lasting impression on you there are very many patients who left an impression on me and um for all sorts of of different reasons often often sad reasons there have been patients who i've i've lost and who i will never forget indeed ones that my you know i had something close to ptsd i guess from from one of these incidents where i would you know wake up you know back in an operating theater i've had things that i profoundly regret doing like there was a a lady who was dying who asked me if she was dying and I'd never been asked that question before and I said no of course not but she was and that ate me up that you know she'd asked this impossibly difficult question and I failed her and I went back to see her at the end of a shift where I'd been thinking about it non-stop and uh and it was and it was too late and you know that's something that that's something with, that stayed with me a lot so you know even though the stuff I mostly wrote down were the silly things and the disgusting things and the weird things a lot of the stuff that stayed with me is the is the much less fun stuff mm. I mean it, it is an extraordinary job 
I mean, just from the, you know from, from your stories, they kind of from the absurd to the kind of incredibly uh, raw. It's, it's an extraordinary job to be drawn to. Did you have a sort of calling when you were younger? Did you think this is what you 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 felt drawn towards, or were you just a sort of a bit of a science nerd at school? Yeah, it, was, it wasn't a calling. I was sent. My my dad was a doctor. I'm in a family of doctors. I went to you know a minor public school that was a sausage factory that churns out doctors and lawyers and architects and you know politicians and um, it was I think of it like the default setting for my life unless I came up with a better alternative then that's what I would end up doing and it's a decision you make when you're extremely young it's a decision you make when you choose your A levels or your hires when you're when you're 16. And that's not a good age to decide what you want to do for the rest of your life. And I made the decision. Um, and uh, I, in medicine, everything is informed consent, isn't it? If you, you know, if you, if you have to have an operation and the doctor says, this is the reason you're going to have the operation. And there are risks with everything. And there's a risk of infection and risk of having the anesthetic and risk of blood clots. And they go through that. There's, there certainly wasn't that when I went into medicine. I was just reminded, which is true, that it's the most amazing job in the world and it's this extraordinary privilege. But it's a job that does have things that make it very difficult and they're not things that are necessarily talked about. The, 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 the toll that it takes on, on humans, certainly when, you know, when I started medical school in, um, in 1998, that was something that was never discussed something that's actively ignored mm. and then having found yourself or, or just kind of carried on this trajectory and you know gone to med school and uh, become a junior doctor when you're sort of weighing up the specialities what what drew you to obs and gynae well um you end up with twice the number of patients that you start with <laughs> on labor which is a really good batting average for a medical <laughs> specialty yes I was drawn to the highs without realizing that the height of the highs is always set off by the depth of the lows. Every medical specialty is essentially this sine waves of, of ups and downs, and the higher the highs, the lower the lows. And, you know, when you're on labor ward and your actions, split second actions, can literally save a baby's life, even save a mother's life. That is extraordinary adrenaline. It's a wonderful, I think privilege is the only word to be involved in th that part of a family's life. I spent a lot of time working in um, subfertility clinics and parents, prospective parents who thought they would never be able to conceive, being able to tell them that you know they, they can and we've done this. And it's, I can't tell you how extraordinary it is. And and I was drawn in by by that, not thinking about the the other side and people are starting to talk about it more now but at, at the time that wasn't really a wasn't really a thing i guess the first birth that you were responsible for must have been quite an experience yeah i mean it, it's sort of indescribable and it maintains that that's i mean that that's what keeps people working there it's, it's you know you're driving home three hours late covered in blood the dinner's in the dog, you're half asleep at the wheel, but you still have that, that smile on your face. Did it sort of 
I don't give you a bit more perspective on humanity. And I guess in in that labour room, you're seeing everyone stripped down to their their most animalistic. You know, without there, there as a kind of species reproducing. Yeah, you're seeing people in extremists, which is uh, which is a very good way to um, to learn more about um, about what makes us human. And it's good and it's bad. And when you're sat on the tube on a train or on the bus, you do look at people slightly differently. You're afforded this amazing insight into the most personal moments of their of their lives, plus some of them you have to go down to A&E and remove objects out of. So uh, you never know what's going on hmm. behind someone's um, face as they're sat listening to the podcasts. And, I mean, you, you talk about like the kind of highs of... of- giving birth and that lasting whilst you're driving home and you're knackered and you're, and you're covered in blood. But conversely, there are those, those lows and without kind of wanting to, to dwell on them, you know, as you write, you, there was a, uh, I guess a birth that didn't go so well, which ultimately led, led you to leaving medicine. Was that, had that been building up for some time or was it, was there a sort of uh, something about that particular moment? The moment was far and away the single worst thing that, I was involved with, and I'll talk about that in a second. I didn't think there had been any build-up. When I first sent my diaries off to uh, Francesca, who's my, uh, who's my editor for my first book, she said, you just feel it building up. And I was like, no, I don't think you do, because, well, you know how it ends, because we've spoken about this. But then when people started you know, writing to me about the book. Time and time again, people said they, they could see the, see the cracks. And, and I, I now believe that they really were, were there. My diaries were written at the time. I just wasn't aware of what I was actually writing down. So my, my very bad day at work, I was the most senior doctor working on a labor ward. All you ever want from every single case is a healthy mum plus a healthy baby. And this was one of these tragic situations where you end up with neither of those two things. And it wasn't my fault. It wasn't anyone's fault. It was just, it was just, just one of those things. When it happened, everyone was very nice to me and explained that it wasn't my fault and I shouldn't have done anything differently. I hadn't done anything wrong. But it was, it was a bit like I'd said I'd sprained my ankle or something. Like, oh, no, you were right. That's awful. Um, but obviously, you can do clinic in the morning, right? Because the system's got no slack in it. There's not enough slack you can go home on time. Of course, there's not enough slack that someone can say to you, maybe you need a bit of time off there. And compounding that, there's this culture amongst medics that says, you know, you're a bloody doctor and you bloody get on with it. This whole stiff upper lip thing. And I did go back to, to work to do clinic the next day and the day after that and the week after that. And I was a useless doctor because being overcautious intervening too much is as bad as being undercautious that doesn't make you a, doesn't make you a good doctor and i was trying to avoid something happening again that i had no way of avoiding because as people would tell me who were making me or wanting me to feel better if you are the most senior doctor on a labor ward you'll have some kind of big disaster every 5 or 6 years but that wasn't a good thing for me to hear because Hearing that made me realize that I couldn't face that kind of thing ever happening to me ever again, let alone twice a decade. 
um, because I'm made of the wrong stuff or I don't have thick enough armour or no one had told me when I was applying to medical school or going to my medical school interview or choosing obstetrics and gynaecology that this is this is something that that happened do you think that other doctors naturally have a thicker arm it's just a sort of personality type is it you you were kind of honest with your introspection do you think others just sort of mask it or find other ways to deal with it yep some people are better at dealing with stuff some people have better coping mechanisms and some people are less good and have worse coping mechanisms i got as soon as my book came out, I got message after message after message from doctors saying, I thought I was the first person who'd ever cried in a toilet at work. It makes you feel like a failure. That's just, that's the cultural thing amongst medics. And, and I had, I also had messages in their droves from very senior doctors often saying, it would always start the same way. I've never told anyone this, but, and then some awful tragedy and they didn't tell anyone because you're not meant to so there were two things there there's one is me as a person and what I can deal with and the other thing is the the system and maybe I would have coped better if I was taught that I needed to have a toolbox of ways to cope because the diaries that I wrote down were my best attempt at coping and that wasn't enough and it wasn't good enough. And there are obviously much better things you can do. You can, you can talk to people. You can take time off. You can, there's, there's huge amounts of evidence. Doctors use evidence. That's, you know, if you go to the doctor and say, I think my asthma is getting worse, they use evidence to say, well, maybe we should switch you onto this or increase the dose of that. But when it comes to themselves and their well-being, that's not something they've ever really employed. Do you think there's a there could have been a different specialism which would have been more suited to your personality do you think do you think dr k could have been an an eminent plastic surgeon possibly i think i think the surgical specialties are probably a bit on the difficult side for me in terms of the what i struggle with i mean it's it's so difficult because there, there is no such thing as the easy specialty there just isn't but i think something my temperament might have been better suited to would be general practice because the sine wave is never flat so you know dermatology is you know derma holiday people used to call it you know there's you're not going to be woken up in the middle of the night with a skin emergency particularly often but you know if someone comes to you and you say oh that's just a mole and that was melanoma, you've still killed your patient. That is, you know, there is no part of medicine where that, where that doesn't exist. But yeah, I, I think if I'd have, if I'd have had a, a, a slightly wide, wider field of vision going into um, choosing my specialty, then it would have increased the odds that I'd, um, I'd still be working as a doctor and decreased the odds I'd be invited on uh, to speak as a, a guest on a podcast, I guess. Yes, well, you know, it's the uh, that, that that's the um, the balance. But uh, do you, do you see sort of different personality traits in different specialities? Do dermatologists tend to display similar characteristics? You know, do colorectal surgeons tend to be sort of similar types of people? Yes, it's slight. It's slightly mean girls, and everyone finds their finds their clique. So, like historically, the orthopedic surgeons would be a superannuated version of the medical school rugby team. And that was like the, the, the blokiest, you know, 
cut bone saw bone glue bone sort of specialty and um people like the pediatricians and the psychiatrists would be very nice and uh an obzingani would be somewhere in the in the middle and um and i guess you're drawn to first of all people recruit people who are similar to them and people are, are drawn to specialties full of people that they, they they identify with i think that's that's getting a lot better but i would still say that to generalize the surgical specialties are the specialties where there's the most sort of uh, machismo um and sort of uh, probably the least mental self-care the hardest to say i'm i'm struggling um i speak a lot um or i did when it was when it was a thing uh you know at at events you know, speaking to all sorts of people from medical students junior doctors and right up to very senior people in their specialties and um I was speaking to a sort of hugely preeminent group of surgeons. I won't say which specialty, and and I I sort of poured my heart out on on stage, and you know, and was begging them to to look after themselves and make sure they're looking after their juniors, and invite these you know these young doctors out for a, a cup of coffee because it'll make such a difference to them. And I told them about why I left, and I finished. And then the MC, who was the head of this organization, got up on stage and said, well, I'm sure most of you are a lot more robust than that. Um, there are, there, there are a lot of, there are still dinosaurs, but hopefully the, the newer generation of, of doctors, the ones who went into it, hopefully with their eyes slightly more open, will be much better bosses and realize how important this side of thing is. A quick word, well, one sentence from our sponsor, Karmacist. Karmacist supplements don't contain any artificial fillers, preservatives, colours, oxide forms of minerals or titanium dioxide. And they are 100% vegan friendly. Karmacist.com is where you'll find your supplements and no nasty oxides. Adam, if you could uh, apply your analytical skills to diagnose our health service, what's going right, what's going wrong with it? Okay, I think that's relatively, on a macro level, that's a very easy question. So the best thing about it is the theory behind it, that it was the theory that, that, that was founded on the base of the 72 years ago, that it's free at the point of service, and it's based on your clinical need, uh, and it's not based on your bank balance or anything else. Whatever problem anyone has with the NHS for whatever reason, you just can't argue with that. It's the single fairest way of looking after your population. And the single thing that's wrong with it is money. And the NHS is totally fit for purpose and it can work and it does work, but of course it gets more expensive. Every healthcare system gets more expensive every single year because your population gets older and we're discovering new drugs and we're discovering new technologies. And that creates this concept called health inflation, which is basically the amount in real terms you need to pay into a health service to get the same health service you had the year before. And health inflation has actually been relatively stable over the years at about 3%. And if you keep adding 3% in real terms to your health service, you can still pay for it. Unfortunately, there was a decade where the amount that went in 
increase year on year was about 1%. So instead of being able to do what they used to be able to do before, they couldn't even tread water. And now, very happily, the money that is going into the health service is I mean, I don't know what I don't know what the pandemic's done to the numbers. That's obviously skewed a bit. But prior to that, it was it was three three to four percent, which is great. But it doesn't make up for the the, the decade where it. I mean, it's like starving someone for you know for a fortnight and then giving them a normal meal and saying what are you complaining about. So I mean, that's my that's on a on a basic level. Obviously, there are ten thousand different things you can do to improve the health service or indeed any system. But that's basically what it needs. So as as well as that kind of I guess injection of cash how would would you structure it differently from from the way we see GPs to the way hospitals run to the way that the public are educated I think in general the the, the model works very well the model works very well if you've got enough GPs which at the moment we don't if you've got enough GPs, then you don't have to wait a fortnight to see them. And your appointment can be as long as it needs to be to get to the bottom of what the problem is. And if, you've, if, they, if they need to refer you to the hospital, if you've got enough doctors and nurses and midwives and you know pharmacists and optometrists and everyone, um, you don't have to wait ages and you get seen. And so the, the system works very, very well when it works. When it's not working, uh, and at the moment, you know, it's, it's, it's so difficult for anyone in any specialty. It's very easy to say, well, I mean, it's clearly totally broken. We need to reimagine a brand new system. And, and I don't think that's the, the case. In terms of personal responsibility, I think we can do a huge amount more. And I would invest very heavily in public health messaging and you know, reminding us the, the the importance of looking after ourselves and the things we should be looking out for, because that that is proven to make a to make a big difference. And and sadly, when when funds are tight, that's one of the first things that gets pulled down in the mix. Because obviously and rightly, people are going to uh, stamp their feet and cause a huge fuss and write to their MPs if. You know, the cancer care in their area is in some way affected or they're going to close down an A&E department. But just by getting rid of some of the public health stuff, um, no one ever really notices or cares. But hopefully a lot of people would notice this year that public health is very important. I mean, you've, um, you've traveled the world with your, with your book, no less. Uh, if you were to kind of, you know, plow some of your um, vast fortune into the uh, into the Adam K state of the art hospital, <laughs> would you would that hospital look different to a kind of modern day hospital? You know, would you, is there anywhere that you've seen in America or around Europe where you think oh, let's let's have some of that or a bit of that? You know, would what would the uh, yeah what would the K hospital look like? I've been lucky to spend a bit of time in America, and I've been unlucky enough to be a patient in America, and I was absolutely wowed by the facilities and it was it was i might as well have been on a space station compared to you know what the the hospital looked like and the sort of how beautiful it was and everyone was and how pristine the uniforms were but ultimately i was in a much worse hospital because I was so aware what a two-tier system I was in. And 
it was I've, I've been I've, I've I've need medical attention a couple of times in uh, in uh, in the states. The sort of the more dramatic one was um, uh, I was I was on uh, I was taking a bit of a holiday in between some work, and I was in uh, I was in a hotel and I was sitting around the pool, and I, I went off to the bathroom, and and I sat on the loo, and a fly or something went in my hair, and I brushed it away. And but it wasn't a fly. What had happened is um, when I sat down, some like a, a broken bit of glass from a picture frame had smashed, had gone onto my head, and I and I'd somehow managed to cut a big flap of skin off my knuckle. And it wasn't a big cut, but it would not stop bleeding. It was like hit a hit some little vessel, and it was just pissing blood like a fire hose. And the more I held it, it was just spurting out through my fingers. So anyway, I went I went back. Um, round to the to the pool to speak to to James, my husband, um, and sort of everyone was. It, it looked like I'd been shot. Basically, the blood blood was all over me, all over my t shirt, all over my trunks, and um, and everyone was screaming, and we couldn't make it stop. So the, eventually, we had to had to go to a, a hospital, uh, and this emergency department. Literally, the first thing they did was take my insurance details. And uh, you know, I, I and I didn't have any of the details with me, so okay, fine. So we need to before anything happens, that's a swipe of your credit card, and uh, and then my care was, you know, I've, I've obviously been a patient in A and E departments uh, in the NHS before a bunch of times, and I've never seen anything move so so quickly from nurse to the senior nurse to the doctor to the specialist to the x-ray to this to that and it was sort of, it was so slick it was like this is this is extraordinary this is wonderful however they were asking questions like do you want an x-ray so normally we would do an x-ray just to check there's no glass that's gone into um into a joint which would be a bad thing but it will be $1,500 or whatever it is. And I was finding myself as a patient going, ooh, I mean, if the, if the insurance doesn't cover it, that's $1,500 is a lot. I mean, what are the chances? And James was like, what would you tell a patient? I was like, have the x-ray. I was like, well, you have the x-ray then. And you know, when it was closing the wound, there was a price difference between uh, doing stitches and using glue to close it up. And I was... I realized that I would never want to be a doctor in a system where you have to think in the slightest about how much it's it's costing because that affects your care. So I'd had the most slick experience ever in a hospital and it had taught me that that would be a disaster if the NHS looked like that. Do you ever miss the front line, the the hospital work? No, I mean and you know your writing's opened up so many other options but what what is it that you do miss I, I miss it hugely and i miss i don't know how to say this without saying sounding pathetic or weird but i miss being useful being maybe useful's not right being there's some there's something about the buzz that you you get and the feeling that you're you're helping that I've never had since, and obviously the you know the arts have immeasurable value, but it's a number of steps removed from saving a baby's life, you know, on a on a delivery suite. 
and I miss my colleagues and I miss the patients and there's a, there's a lot of it's a lot I don't miss but there is a lot that there is a lot that I do miss to the extent that you know obviously every writer has their best before date and I will reach that point sooner or later and when life's quieter I'm sure I will go back in some capacity it won't be on labor ward it might not be on any ward but whether it's in terms of teaching students or postgraduates or helping with policy um I don't know what it is but I'm I'm sure I've not set foot in a hospital as a member of staff for the last time Adam I'm just going to end with a, a couple of quick fire questions who is your brilliant brain who inspires you who do you look up to so many so many people as a writer I'm going to have two who are Nora Ephron and I think Heartburn is just the most amazing bit of writing and and David Sedaris who is the the grand high wizard of what I try to do with my diaries and if you were made health secretary overnight but given dictatorial powers you could do great you could do anything that you want to improve the nations the world's health what would you do you know what I'd do for the NHS, and it involves sort of getting more money out of the exchequer. But the world, world's health, we, the world can afford for every single country to have healthcare the quality of the of the NHS, and there is such a gulf between developed and developing nations in terms of their their healthcare, and it's it's heartbreaking if you look at the number of people who die from totally curable infectious diseases and you you read about that on one page of the paper and then you turn another page and some multi-billionaire has you know added another five billion to his net wealth through some you know financial finagling and it doesn't it doesn't sit right there is enough money that we can all have decent health care so if my remit extends to the world I'm going to super tax anyone with a billion quid to pay for that. I don't think you've alienated too many listeners there. So, um, <laughs> Adam, thanks so much. Uh, on, on behalf of the, I believe it's about 1,200 children you've delivered, thank you for them. Thanks, thanks for all the joy you've, you've brought us in your writing. And uh, Kay's Anatomy um, is out now, which is uh, something for the kids. Something for the kids. That's great. Adam, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks to Adam Kay. To hear all 12 episodes of Brilliant Brains, including author Fatima Bhutto describe how she turned some extraordinary family events into a source of resilience, go to the podcast page on karmacist.com, the show's sponsor. Thanks also to Nature Boy for the music and producer Tess Davidson. From me, Tim Samuels, that's this episode of Brilliant Brains. <laughs>